When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, writer and critic Owen Hathaway on his most recent books, The Ministry of Nostalgia and Landscapes of Communism. Owen Hathaway writes regularly on architecture and cultural politics for Architects Journal, Architectural Review, Icon, The Guardian, The London Review of Books and The New Humanist. And he's the author of several books, including Militant Modernism, A Guide to the New Ruins of Great Britain, and The New Kind of Bleak, Journeys Through Urban Britain. His latest books are Landscapes of Communism and The Ministry of Nostalgia, both of which we're going to hopefully have time to talk about today. So, Owen, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. The Ministry of Nostalgia we're going to talk about in the main, and it's a lovely book and it's embossed on the cover with familiar message, keep calm and carry on, which is Mm. sort of the the symbol that resonates throughout this book. So everyone will, I guess, have heard that statement, but it's actually got an interesting history, or an unlikely history. It does. It's a poster that did not actually really exist in the public sphere until around 2007, 2008. It was one of three posters uh, devised by the Ministry of Information, newly set up in 1939, uh, to be printed in the event of aerial bombing, which was considered at that point that it would cause total like social disaster and people would panic and there'd be chaos. In the end, you know wasn't great, but this is not, you know, did not lead to the total breakdown of society. There were three posters. One said, freedom is in peril, defend it with all your might. One said, and it's best said in the kind of Anthony Eden voice, your courage, your cheerfulness, your resolution will bring us victory. And then there was the third, which was keep calm and carry on. Now, of these three, two were actually printed up en masse and, and used and actually put up. You can see there's quite a few photographs that show the your courage, your cheerfulness, etc. You, mm-hmm. can, you can see them around. There's one on a wall in the life and death of Colonel Blimp, in fact, when his house gets bombed at the end of the film. Um, you can see one there. But Keep Come and Carry On was never used. And there's an interesting question as to why it was never used. I think initially I, I had read a text that said that this was because it was supposed to be in the event of a ground invasion and that because there was no ground invasion it was never printed. But it transpires that this is not true. This is in the book, but it turns out I'm, I'm, this has actually had a dodgy source. So for this, this is from the official Keep Come and Carry On website, in fact, which actually exists and transpires to not be a reliable historical source. I think probably the most likely thing is it would have people off because surveys at the time by mass observation, you know, the kind of organisation set up in the 30s as a sort of very early left-leaning, you would call it market research, but it wasn't market research at that point, that mass observation found out that your courage, etc., really, really 
wound people up. And they felt it was condescending and patronising, kind of de haut en bas, you know. Mm. It was like, your courage will bring us victory. And people were just furious about it. So that's, that's where it comes from. It's afterlife comes when a load of books are donated to Barter Books, second-hand bookshop in Northumberland. They print it up, they copy it and they print it up. And then the V&A gets hold of it, and then from the V&A onwards, you know, the deluge, then it just becomes absolutely massive. And this is all around 2007, 2008. So at the exact point when the financial crisis happens, which, being somewhat paranoid, I do not consider to be a coincidence... So as I said, we're, you know, we're all familiar with this, but mainly from tea towels and biscuit tins and things yep. in gift shops yep. rather than actual wartime yeah, propaganda. And, and precisely, because this, it, it's an image of the 40s that no one in the 40s could ever have seen, mm-hmm. apart from the people at the Ministry of Information. Maybe triple figures at most would ever have seen it. When did, you first, when did it first sort of irk you? It first irked me, I think it was winter 2008, when there was quite heavy snow. And as happens here when there is some snow, or recently even when there was too much sunlight, public transport system breaks down. I was walking around Blackheath, uh, one of the many areas in south-east London that had their trains completely screwed, and wandering around all these lovely Georgian houses and Span houses in, in Blackheath. And they all had, or they seemed all to have, this poster in their window. And I just thought, what are you talking about? You know, this, this sort of comparing of, like, the trains aren't working because there's some snow because we sold our railway system to vultures, you know, and have decided to underinvest into the whole thing for decades. That This is comparable to the Blitz. <laughs> and then a, a few weeks after that, even better, was when there was a tube strike. And I saw it endlessly being invoked and shown at that point because there was a tube strike. I thought, OK, so you are comparing, like, a one-day, two-day strike by rail unions to having Nazis throw bombs at you. You are an idiot. You know, just the invocation of the blitz spirit and the keep come and carry on spirit because for once workers are going on strike about something. I just thought, okay, this thumbs up the sort of smugness and narcissism of a particular and kind workers of... workers who, of course, were the people that this original poster might have been aimed at well, to forbear the, the blitz. Yeah, exactly. And, and that forbearance is also an important part of the book. Lots of it is sort of comparing our idea of the Blitz to the account given actually specifically by mass observation. And mass observation found that people did, by and large, cope with it. There weren't breakdowns of order. There weren't People didn't go psychotic and end up strangling each other or whatever. You know, or, but there was a lot more chaos than is currently thought of. And they were particularly, the government were particularly about Liverpool. When Liverpool got blitzed, they thought there was going to be an insurrection, which there wasn't. But what did happen is when Southampton got blitzed, a lot of people in Southampton anyway went and stayed in the surrounding towns in the New Forest and in the Hampshire countryside. And of course, those who didn't have relatives in the Hampshire countryside to stay with were the ones that got bombs thrown at them. The um, city council actually absconded. And the RAF actually took over the city at one point. There was just like an absence of power in the city of Southampton because like the city fathers were cowering in Winchester, <laughs> leaving, you know, the, the, the working class of Southampton, who were the people that were still there, still working in the docks, still living near the docks, were, were you know, having their houses flattened. So there was actually a coup in the city because of this. And there's a, there's a lovely quote in there from Mass Observation of the you know, various reactions to the king visiting, to, to George VI visiting Southampton after the city centre was basically destroyed. And people were really, really annoyed. You know, there were reports of booing. Um, the crowd was very small. Not a lot of people turned up. And there's one lovely little line which is some, someone saying something like, well, you know, it, it, it's good of them to come and visit us and all that, but I'd much rather have a new house. So this kind of image that we all kind of huddled together... Not really. 
really the case. There's an interviewee who was a woman who was working as a clerk in Manchester, and it's kind of like, well, I suppose we've got to carry on, but you know, it's it's pretty grim. You know, this well, wasn't. What other choice do we yeah. have? Oh, and the other, what other choice do we have? And the other thing that I just thought was great was um, reports of people trying to start sing-alongs being shouted down. <laughs> Because that's the thing we all imagine is that everyone sits around going, roll out the barrel. Well, according to Matt's observation, someone tried to start up, roll out the barrel, and they got shouted down in um, shelter in a tube station in the East End, this was. So this... They were not keeping calm and carry on, by and large. Yeah, the keep calm and carry on thing now, it's an obvious symbol that we see everywhere, but it's only one of quite a lot of things you can buy that all seem to be harking back to this sort of mythological austerity time. Mm, mm. So let's talk about some of these other cultural products. Oh, God. There are shops that seem to specifically cater for it. And like, like everything else, they have kind of like a sort of mass market version and a less mass market version. Like, you know, you can go and get the more kind of the cooler version of it at the shop in the Festival Hall. Mm-hmm. Pretty much any like gallery shop now in London or, or, or Manchester or Birmingham, you, you know, you can just get like huge quantities of like Festival of Britain tea towels and memorabilia and austerity cooking and, you know, just kind of trinkets connected with that era, just abundant. But you also get more subtle things like like Kath Kidston, I think, is a good example, <laughs> where, you know, it seems very much connected with this kind of comforting 40s aesthetic, but it's less hipstery. It's not so kind of like, this is for you who knows who Abraham Games is. You know, Kath Kidston kind of nicks from that stuff without being quite so explicit. There's so much of this stuff. It really seems to me ubiquitous. The other one is the Imperial War Museum. If you go to the shop there, it's just wall to wall. The other thing is, is people that are like, you know, like hipsters, you've mentioned a couple of times, mm. just... Well, the whole aesthetic is basically some sort of imagined past, again, that didn't didn't really exist. Well, it's syncretic, as, as, as hipsterism always is. And it's, it's, I was quite keen not to do something that was about hipster bashing. Sure. I was more trying to understand what it is. Like, why, why are they dressing like this now? Rather than going, ah, you fools, you dress like this. Now, there's been a lot of quite shrill stuff about this, about, like, cupcake fascism or whatever. And I was quite keen not to do that, because I think that's a bit daft. So it's more about why why this now is the question. And what's funny for me about it is, is what a consensus there is. Like, it's something that seems to be common to, like, Kirsty Alsop and Jamie Oliver mm-hmm. and to, like, the, the cool kids at Broadway Market. And yeah. I thought that was really funny, that they're, they're all drawing off from this, this particular period. So why? Why do you think it is? What's the appeal of that? Why is it... I mean, obviously we're talking about it being a period of now, of imposed austerity, there's yeah. you know, a financial crisis. Yeah. Exactly. But I mean, that's not, you know, people are not, the good people you see down Broadway Market are not consciously buying into that narrative, or certainly they wouldn't think they were. I would imagine that probably most people doing that in, in, in Broadway Market, if they vote, probably vote Labour or Green. So it's not saying this is making you into Tories. It's more a sort of subtler thing. This is, this is making you subscribe to a particular idea of, of what's possible. It's really, really crucial that austerity is the word that links the two eras. Mm-hmm. And austerity from you know, 1940 to about 1955 means a variety of things. And one of the things about it is that it's such a, such a weasel word um, and was in both eras. But at that point, it seemed to me it meant rationing, which, you know, whatever else you might say about it, it meant to a degree attempting to enforce on the middle classes that they couldn't eat any more food than the working classes. Mm. It meant a planned economy to a large degree. It meant a huge amount of public spending, like greater than at any point before or since. And lots of the apparent kind of asceticism of that era is a little bit illusory, actually. You know, in contemporary terms, this was an era that that would be considered spendthrift. You know, the the, the spending on the creation of 
the welfare state in that era was was very expensive and involved a lot of borrowing. And with this, a certain sort of ideology of stoicism and rectitude, which has always been, I think, well, not always, but has been for a while a part of how the English like to see themselves, and specifically the English, maybe the Welsh, not that big a thing in Scotland. Current austerity, of course, means something very, very different. No one's going to be rationing the food of the middle classes, although there are the existence of food banks in which charities step in to do what the state refuses to do and what business is no longer capable of. You have an enormous amount of, in terms of spending, actually, you know, spending hasn't hasn't significantly gone down because there's been lots of banks to bail out and there's been lots of, you know. But the idea throughout is forced down public spending. It's been I mean, the most obvious point in the whole book, and really I should, have, I should have just written that and just put it on a little piece of paper and that with the book, is that austerity version one meant building a welfare state. This is about destroying it. And it really, really can't be said enough. There's constant kind of, we maxed out our credit card. It's like, didn't we do that, like, in 1940 when, <laughs> when the entire British economy was basically destroyed? And despite that, then went on to do the, you know, extraordinary nonsense. We're no longer capable of doing this. And yet in that era, somehow we were, despite the situation being being much worse in every possible respect. But the thing that, that carries on with it is this idea of stoicism mm-hmm. and this idea of rectitude, um, which I think has now become a sort of narcissistic performance of rectitude. That sense, the, kind of, the, sort of the invocation yeah. of the spirit and so on, and the poster itself. It's deeply, deeply narcissistic. Look at me, look at how stoic I am. Mm-hmm. No, you're not. You're moaning about a tube strike. Bugger off. So that difference is really, really crucial. And one thing I find a lot is that a lot of people on the left have done that typical thing of arguing on your opponent's terms. So they say this is what austerity is. Well, let's go back and look at the spirit of 45. And actually, then we can prove that. Mm -hmm. Now, this, I think, is okay to a degree in that it's closer to the historical truth. You know, 1940s are more ours than theirs. Mm -hmm. You know, the left can claim the 40s, I think, much more legitimately. Uh, historically than neoliberals can. Actually, it's the era in which neoliberals literally couldn't get arrested. And now, of course, they are like the dominant ideology, unquestionable at the top. You know, the emergence of of the SNP and even more of Corbyn questioning it is seen by the political class, as far as I can see, and by a hell of a lot of the media, including the liberal media, as being utterly illegitimate. Like, you, who do you think you are questioning this? You're, it's like questioning the earth being round for them, that you're questioning neoliberal logic. So that's really the, that's the conjuncture of the whole thing. I'm Rachel Cook. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. You mentioned The Spirit of 45. There's a Ken Loach film, which is, mm. I mean, you describe it in the book as looking like a Hovis advert. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's the thing that's always annoyed me about, a bit about Loach, is that his version of the working classes is wistful a lot of the time. But, I mean, of the two kind of austerity and nostalgia films in that book, I don't think The Spirit of 45 is a bad film. I think it occludes certain things in order to make its point. And I don't know how it could have included them without making it into a more difficult film. And the other film that's in there is is, um, a film about Tony Benn called Will and Testament, which I think is actively bad. Loach knows what he's doing. Because Loach is making a propaganda film, he has to excise certain things that don't fit the propaganda. So the basic point of Spirit of 45, that we created something great, and now it's being destroyed, and you should fight for it. Fine. Good. I agree with this. I have two problems with it. One of which is that Who's the audience? Who's the addressee? It strikes me that those who are most likely to defend the welfare state are those that are likely to need it. 
And they, I think, I may be making a huge generalisation here, but I think lots of the contemporary working class don't look like that which is presented in the film. You're not, who are you wanting to speak to? You know, uh, and I think that, that, that the addressee is much more likely to be, you know, uh, inverted snobbery, I suppose, but the addressee is more likely to be middle class, I think, because of that presentation. The other thing is the empire. Okay, to illustrate it, a writer should never mention his reviews, but I'm, I'm going to. Stuart McConey, in his review of the book in the New Statesman, he said some funny things. It, it made me laugh. I was, you know, imagining him on TV going, remember the 1940s? God, what were we thinking? But he had this kind of like, in the era of Jeremy Hunt, I find it quite difficult to be angry about Herbert Morrison. Now, you know, insofar as it goes, fine. <laughs> if we're talking about Herbert Morrison as the guy that, in, that introduced the London Passenger Transport Board, the guy who ran the LCC and built thousands and thousands of council houses, the, you know, as, as the person behind the Festival of Britain, and to a degree as the person behind nationalisation, although I think that nationalisation would have endured a lot more if it wasn't as bureaucratic and undemocratic as Morrison had made it. But he was also a foreign secretary. And as a foreign secretary, he was openly imperialist. And that's what I'm talking about when I want to have a go at people like Bevin or Attlee or Morrison, is that they help found a certain Labour Party Atlanticism, which, which is really, really tenacious. And you can see Corbyn currently dealing with this, with the fact that the Parliamentary Labour Party's instincts is never disagree with the United States on anything if you can possibly avoid it. So Morrison, you know, and the Labour Party government in general from 45 to 51, do something great, I think, for people in this country. And at the same time, they are backing, you know, fascist militias in Greece. Basically, you know, <laughs> stuff that's, that still warps Greek politics to this day comes to very large degree from Britain refusing to let it go communist through, the through as to quote Kissinger, not refusing to let a country go communist through the stupidity of its own people. What Britain was doing in Greece is not terribly different to what, the Soviets were doing in Poland, mm-hmm. you know, of like being worried that a country that's supposed to be part of your bloc might have other ideas. Mm-hmm. What they're doing in Greece is pretty gross. What they're doing in Malaya is pretty gross, where they are brutally suppressing an insurgency. What they were doing in um, Palestine and in India when they were facilitating absolutely disastrous partitions of each country. And this is just the top, the top of my head, mm-hmm. you know. But Bevan and Morrison, when they, you know, as, as foreign secretaries, their big idea of what would pay for the British welfare state would be basically to kind of squeeze Africa. And it didn't, tend, it didn't in the end, it didn't work out. But this is really not the point. You know, they were, I think, beyond India which they were kind of keen on decolonising India, partly because it had become, it was increasingly ungovernable for Britain. Apart from that, they were very keen to maintain the British Empire, and did. Decolonisation really happens actually much later in the late 50s and 60s. That's a very influential tradition still. Like, one of the things that, one of the writers that I had quite a lot of fun talking about in the book is Orwell. And it, there's a little bit of an attempt to defend Orwell against his defenders in that book, um, which I think is probably too much of, I think. But I, I find him really interesting and much weirder than he's given credit for. And he, and unlike practically the kind of the entire mainstream of, of British writers, political and, and, and fiction writers, he knew what the empire was. Mm-hmm. And apart from like maybe Orwell and Kipling, maybe like, you know, Passage to India by Ian Forster and a couple of other things, apart from this, you can basically read the entirety of 20th century English literature as if the empire never happened. Mm-hmm. And Orwell, as an ex-Burmese policeman born in India, you know, the empire was totally central to his thinking. And in many ways, much more progressive than the Labour government. And in other ways, very much limited by the prejudices of his time and his class. And he has this kind of annual letter to partisan review in the US. 
And in one of them, he says, the beverage report, this is 43, so the beverage report is not being publicised in India. The thought of the feeling is that, you know, that if people knew about this in India, there'd be, you know, <laughs> basically there'd be riots. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, right, so we're paying for all of this. They're going to get free health care, unemployment benefit, pensions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, off our backs. Then this later thing happens that lots of the kind of, like, you know, labour labor traditionalists um, are very keen on, the kind of blue labour idea centres on the belief that the welfare state was for was designed for Britons, yeah. draws on the research study in New East End from about 12 years ago, no less than that. Anyway, the study in the 2000s that basically went around interviewing people in the East End and in Essex and, and found that there was a, a certain amount of people that had this kind of like, well, yeah, I support the welfare state, but we built it for us, not for them, which is really funny. This is the <laughs> exact reversal of what people like Orwell saw in, 19, in 1943. They saw that the welfare state would be built on the backs of Indians. And their descendants, being beneficiaries of the welfare state in the 21st century, is seen by a lot of the Labour writers as illegitimate, which is a wonderful reversal of, 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 of the facts. You mentioned you know, this idea that you could really look at pretty much the whole of British 20th century literature and not mention the empire. Mm, mm. And I find that really interesting about, again, this sort of modern austerity consumption movement. You know, all of these people that read the chap and dress like some sort of <laughs> 1930s stevedore. Yeah. All of these people are, are, as you said, good leftist Labour and Green voting people who would not consider that they had a racist bone in their body. I mean, of course, they're all really into something that's like from a a time when this country was very, very white. And and maybe this is all just cosplay. You know, maybe it's just silly. I think in some cases it is. But also there are, you know, there are other aspects of it. The whole kind of world of people like Alex James and Jeremy Clarkson, Mm -hmm. you know, know, having David Cameron over for dinner. That's an openly Tory version of it. And, you know, someone like Kirsty Alsop, who I think is kind of part of this story, you know, is, is a Tory. Lots, some of these people are actually just Tories. Some of them are not. Some of them, I would say probably the majority, are basically apolitical. But the interesting thing for me is how the memorabilia is interestingly selective <laughs> from that era. So one of the things that you always see on the tea towels and on the posters and in the gift shops is imagery from London Transport, and rightly so. You know, of 20th century design, like London Transport is one of the few things that we can put against anything and go, well, this was as good as anything that was happening anywhere. So its place in design history is very, very justified. But the interesting thing about it is all the exact same personnel behind the publicity campaigns of London Transport. So Frank Pick as director, E. McKnight Corfer as designer, all of these kind of, you know, sort of Fauvist and expressionist painters of the 20s and 30s. And the film directors, people like John Grierson, Basil Wright, they were all doing stuff for the Empire Marketing Board. And that stuff has disappeared. You don't get tea towels, posters and coasters and etc., with the Empire Marketing Board's imagery on it, despite the fact it's exactly the same people at exactly the same time, because it would make people very uncomfortable. And it's a little reminder of what that society actually was. And a lot of the ideas from that era come from a sort of social imperialist tradition that I think has its roots to some degree, actually, in, in, in current cause celeb Cecil Rhodes. Um, and his idea of using the empire as a sort of a sort of safety valve against revolution. You know, there, there's a sort of idea of a sort of planned rather than mercantile empire that comes a little bit from Rhodes and comes from social imperialism, the Fabian society and so on. Whether it was any better if you were the person colonised, I seriously doubt. But it was that was very much an idea in the air at the time and it was very influential in the Labour Party. And the empire was central to all these people's thinking. And one of the interesting things about the Festival of Britain is that it seems to mark an odd point where that stops. Mm-hmm. 
Festival of Britain is where the empire disappears. Like, if you look at all of the kind of great exhibitions from, like, the, you know, the great exhibition in the Crystal Palace in 1851, and the various ones that happen every few years after that for the next hundred years, they're all empire exhibitions. And lots of what they showcase is, look at our great empire. You know, that really is lots of it. It's like showing off your plunder. And if you look at the stuff that immediately precedes the Festival of Britain, so the, the Empire Exhibition in Wembley in 1924, the Empire Exhibition in Glasgow in 1938, they are Empire Exhibitions. And they have pavilions from the colonies and from the dominions. Worth remembering that divide, incidentally. There were dominions which were ruled by white people and were OK. There were colonies which we had to rule directly because they didn't know, you know how to mm-hmm. rule themselves. And those exhibitions are totally part of that. The Festival of Britain is the Festival of Britain. It's not the Festival of the Empire. It's about kind of British national character and British industry and British technology without much attention to Britain's role in the creation of a gigantic transcontinental empire based on white supremacy and mass murder. So there's something interesting about why that stops. So although I think the Labour government at that point were, were quite openly imperialist. It's funny that they, they're also the point where the forgetting begins, and that's where you can see that. So I don't find any of the content of the Festival of Britain objectionable. In fact, I think it's all great. I think the point has been missed, I think, if people think that this is me going, all this stuff is crap. It's not. Most of the stuff in the book is things that I think are quite admirable. It's just, what is this forgetting? What is this obscuring? And what use is it now? Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny, and I'm talking to Owen Hatherley in the main at the moment about his book, The Ministry of Nostalgia. And, Owen, I want to talk now in the second part about some of the institutions of the 1940s, and we're going to talk about art, filmmakers, and bureaucrats, and buildings. And and so to get into that, I want to talk about another book that you talk about in this book that creates another myth about that time, which is uh, Romantic Moderns by (laughs) Alexander Harris, which... 
Yeah, it has a sort of counter-narrative about all of those people. Yeah, it does. It really does. It was kind of hard not to have a go at her, because I think her idea of modernism is the exact antipode of mine. Which doesn't mean that she's wrong. I think what she talks about exists. I think that she has to ignore a whole load of other stuff mm-hmm. in order to get to it. And I think she also creates a kind of caricature hard modernism that she then can like raise her romantic modernism against. Mm-hmm. But in terms of like ever being factually wrong, I think that's as far as it goes. Like she sort of sets up Ben Nicholson's really boring kind of sub to style and goes, here's what modernism was, and then here's what it was ten years later when it was people in St Ives and in country houses and dicking about in Hampshire. And, you know, there are various things, I think, that annoy me about that, that narrative. It seems to be based on a kind of... You've been told that modernism was this futurist movement for the destruction of the 19th century and its replacement with, you know, a new world of glittering snow-white concrete, to quote Orwell, and egalitarianism and some kind of socialism, and a sort of year-zero aesthetic. Well, actually, it was this. It was John Piper doing paintings in of stone circles, and it was Elizabeth Bowen and Evelyn Waugh being really upset that stately homes were in decline. And it was like, yeah, but I think, to be honest, that's pretty marginal by comparison. I mean, actually, the 19th century thing is funny, because I think the only thing that pretty much all modernisms of that point could agree on, um, whether or not it was people that were very right-wing indeed, like T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound and Wyndham Lewis, or whether or not it was people like Bertold Lebeckin and Bill Brandt, was that the 19th century was... the worst thing that ever happened Um, and trying to kind of make us the neo-Victorian version of modernism is is brave but the depoliticisation of that era I think is the crucial problem so there were lots of institutions that were actually drawing on a quite similar aesthetic and drawing on some of the personnel who she doesn't mention. Poster design, for instance, she talks about the shell guides, yeah. where, you know, very much kind of aimed at middle-class car owners who, which at that point would have been, incidentally, it's worth stressing that, if you owned a car in the 1930s, you were pretty likely to be quite wealthy. This thing kind of aimed at middle-class car owners, you know, that go out and see the country, basically, which you can now do in a car. All of the people that are doing this are, again to be found working for London Transport, working for London County Council, working for the Ministry of Information, producing images that are much more in a version of modernism that's about recovering from the 19th century, about building a new kind of society, and that are usually done by public bodies. Mm-hmm. Almost all of it is you know, is public corporations, not, are frequently nationalised. Shell are the only private company that most of these people are working for. Mm-hmm. And so it's really funny that Shell is the one that she talks about because like, it's the only bloody private one. They also, also, some of it is just has a weird way of looking at certain things. Like, lots of the kind of figures that are in that book, she's totally welcome to. I have no desire to, like, you know, make any argument on behalf of these people. They don't interest me. Maybe one or two, like Barbara Hepworth, I think, were, were really interesting. But mostly, it's a progression of people that I think were non-entities, like John Betjeman. But the two that kind of fit in are, are Bill Brandt and, and Bertolt Lebeckin. Mm-hmm. And they, of those, I was kind of like, you can't turn these two into these sort of Kath Kidston modernists. You just can't do it. You have to, like, do violence to them to do that. So with Lebeckin, she talks about, like, the fact that Lebeckin had these cast Greek characters at one of his blocks of flats. Mm-hmm. He goes, aha, yes, see. Lebeckin wasn't just about year zero. It's like, well, 
He wasn't, you know, he, Lebetkin was not against having some fun of historical architecture, but he was in favour of the total destruction of British capitalism. You know, he was a, a, an open communist. His version of the New World had no place for, you know, the, the romantic modernism that, that Harris described, of stately homes and, and you know, all of this. It was, it was a, really, really about destroying that. And then there's the... And she makes huge play of the fact that he ended up becoming a pig farmer. It's like he became a pig farmer because of the fact that he could hardly get any... You know, because of the fact that he'd been basically destroyed as a man and as an architect by the fact that the Peterly Newtown thing failed. Like, he went off to farm pigs in total failure. It wasn't like some kind of like, right, I'm going to embrace the wonderful British countryside and farm pigs. He did it because he was in a state of total depression. Anyway, the other one is Bill Brandt. So Bill Brandt is this kind of Austrian photographer, one of that great generation of emigres. And actually, the much interesting, but more interesting than my book or hers, would be a book that would trace those emigrates and their influence, because I think actually the crucial thing that happens in the 1930s to British art and aesthetics more than anything else is the emigration from Central and Eastern Europe, Mm -hmm. from Germany and from Austria and Czechoslovakia and so on. That that just transforms things completely. So Brandt comes over and, you know, does The English at Home, does this photography book, The English at Home, um, which is basically a juxtaposition of, like, how the upper class live and how the working class live. That's what that book is. And she sees it as a playful book about how people inhabit their, their spaces. No, it's not. Like, if you can't see that in that book, you are not looking at that book properly. So this was an era of real class war. She mainly talks about the 30s, and the 40s only really feature in terms of the Recording Britain project of Sir Kenneth Clark, mm-hmm. where Britain is recording and Britain turns out to be entirely the home counties. And as the neglect and destruction of the stately home by the 1945 Labour government, which greatly upsets Elizabeth Bowen and Evelyn Waugh. So most of it is the 30s. And, you know, the 30s were the era of, like... <laughs> The Means Test, the Jarrow March, the Great Depression, and also an era of great consumerism. You know, it was also the era of like people in the suburbs of London and suburbs of Birmingham becoming incredibly Americanized mm. for the first time. It's a decade in which the stark differences between different parts of the country become really, really extreme, as extreme as they are now. And to kind of smooth all this over, all of this very, very spiky era, and smooth it out into people getting it together in the country, seems to me to be a deliberately tendentious thing to do. And I'm not against tendentiousness. I mean, Christ, this book is extremely tendentious. Um, First, I'm against people pretending that they're not being tendentious. Mm. She presents what she's doing as as real art history. And it's not. It's as tendentious as this. What she's doing is polemic. What if modernism was really Tory? And, you know, literary modernism is, like literary modernism, you know, the modernism of, like, you know, Yeats and Eliot and so on is, was, is pretty Tory. The modernism of design and, and mm. art, the kind of modern movement, which is what she's talking about mostly, was not particularly Tory. Actually, it was, it was on a sort of scale from Fabian to communist. So, yeah, it, it's just a, a whitewash, I think. You mentioned there the expansion out towards the suburbs of London, and I wanted to talk about, you mentioned Frank Pick, in mm. the first part of the London Passenger Transport Board, an organisation that was using that sort of art that we've already mm, mentioned mm. To, to sort of encourage people to go out to these suburbs. But I wanted particularly to talk about the Piccadilly Line, the expansion yeah, yeah, door yeah. for the Piccadilly Line, and some of those amazing stations. Mm. Frank Pick is kind of... Uh, one reason I like to write about Frank Pick is because I'm very annoyed by narratives of planning that are very centred on New York or Paris, mm-hmm. right? You know, that everyone kind of bangs on about Robert Moses and Baron Houseman because they're quite easy to, to paint as villains, which, of course, both were villainous, more or less, whereas Pick is a much, much more complicated figure. London doesn't really have, like, any figure that tries to plan it, really, between, like, John Nash in the early 19th century and then Pick mm-hmm. in the 30s. 
and pick on the London Transport Board. Pick is, I guess, used a little bit as an easy way of describing an entire organisation, you know, rather two organisations, that and the London County Council and, of course, the Empire Marketing Board. So PIC, basically, like London Transport begins as a private company, one of the several companies that, that are running tubes because we started with a privatised railway, one reason why it's such a mess. And they kind of acquire other bits of it. And then, basically, in the early 30s, Herbert Morrison decides to nationalise it and does so with the, with the cooperation of PIC and his boss, Lord Ashfield, who were quite, who seem to have been quite enthusiastic about being nationalised. And I think probably because of this, that's the model for post-war nationalisation. And the quite conservative nationalisation that happens at that point is like, that's, that's the model, it's the underground. Mm-hmm. And I think it worked in the underground and didn't work with a lot of other things. The rail unions were very enthusiastic about this as well. So both when it's a private company in the 20s, 1910s, and then when it's a public organisation in the 30s and 40s, they have this enormous programme of poster design and also of expanding the tube outwards and at this point the architecture of it is this incredibly coordinated planned thing in which the posters the signage and the architecture is totally coordinated in this kind of you know sort of guess and kunstwerk i guess lighting is hugely important and the architect behind all of this charles holden is probably one of the most underrated british architects of the 20th century i think someone that was you know, did extraordinary things, but because of the fact that he was so kind of, you know, had the sort of appearance of a of a straightforward bureaucrat, you know, he never kind of has the fame of certain other less interesting figures like Edwin Lutyens. So those stations are really, really beautiful. The kind of whole kind of line that goes out roughly from Manor House to Cockfosters. And there's other ones as well, like Uxbridge, Gants Hill, East Finchley, just little bits of it on other lines, but mostly it's the Piccadilly. And they're really, really gorgeous. And they have this kind of combination of modernity and serenity that is really, really rare. But the thing of them was, is that the underground, as when it was a private company, had to make a profit. Even though it was, you know, publicly funded, publicly owned, it, you know, still was charged as working more or less like a private company, as all the post-war nationalised companies were. And like the privately owned Metropolitan Railway, which was only brought into public ownership a bit later, they kind of worked like property developers to a large degree. So they would expand the tube out into the open countryside. So the tube would be there first, then the houses would come later. Pick basically like ends up backing the green belt as a way of stopping himself mm-hmm. from like building London out to the point where it's you know goes out as far as Luton and Reading, mm-hmm. and in fact what en- ends up happening is that the green belt just ends up as this little bit that briefly stops London and then it starts again. So it actually has a weird thing of like it eliminates the countryside that it's supposed to that, that it tries to celebrate, much as the Shell stuff did in, in its own less interesting way. At the same time, he's also trying to plan London properly. He's trying, so Piccadilly Circus is a great project of, of Pick's. Of this kind of, one of the reasons why, why I think Piccadilly Circus is one of the best candidates for the centre of London is the way London Transport and Charles Holden planned that station as the hub of the entire mm-hmm. thing. And it's one of the main influences by the Moscow Metro, in fact. Um, they literally, it was like, it was put to them of like, it could be like Berlin or it could be like Piccadilly Circus, and they chose Piccadilly Circus. And it's a weird opposite of what happened after the war in the, you know, the, the London County Council designs huge estates like the Alton Estate and later Thamesmead that are never connected to the tube. Mm-hmm. So this weird reversal, like, you know, like in the 30s, they're building, they're building the tube out to places where no one's living. Mm-hmm. And then in like 1955, they're designing the Alton Estate and connecting it with like some buses. And there's no tube for it, despite the fact that you're building this thing of like 60,000 people are going to live there and you're not building anything for them to actually be able to get around London. Extraordinary. And I think because at that point it was considered they're just own private cars. So yeah, the L- London, London transport is a, is a really, really fascinating thing. And I think it's one of the few things in 20th century London 
that's really, really, really advanced um, and is a really serious attempt at, at, at planning. And because of the fact that there was never really the idea that it would be completely subsidised, it kind of, in many ways, became a thing that sabotaged itself. Mm-hmm. You know, the Paris Metro is... No one thinks the Paris Metro is pays for itself, right? The Paris Metro is just a thing that's subsidised to the hill. Mm-hmm. The Moscow Metro is subsidised to the hill. Berlin Bahn, these things are all just, like, loads of money is thrown at them because they're the only way of keeping the capital cities going mm-hmm. properly. The thing that happens with the London Transport Board that is so malign in terms of its long-term influence is the idea that it will pay for itself, and the way of doing that is to encourage property speculation. If you look at the way Crossrail is being built, that's kind of happening now. You know, that, and near where I live in Woolwich, you know, Crossrail is going to be partly funded by developers being allowed to build a shitload of stuff around the station, which I think is quite a, quite a dangerous way of, of running a city. I'm Jonathan Meads, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. I want to talk about housing. You mentioned uh, later the Alderney step there, and I want to sort of go back to some of the uh, the housing projects of of a slightly earlier time. And we've been talking, you know, we spent plenty of time in the first half talking about how all this stuff ends up on tea towels mm, and how sort of terrible that is. But I'm, you know, I love all of this stuff, and I've got the people always need plate stuff at home. You know, I, I love the, all of these. The, the, the picture in this book of, of the Trellick Tower mug is of my Trellick Tower mug. <laughs> I'd like that on record. <laughs> and so, like, one of the side effects, obviously, of this is all of this stuff that we really like that was once built as really good public housing mm. is now some of the most desirable property in London, mm. completely reversed from the purpose it was supposed to be there for. Mm. Yes and no. I mean, around now, like, in the last couple of months and the next two months, I think about, like, five brutalism coffee table books. Mm-hmm. There's, like, a rush of the bloody things. Incessant, it would seem. Like some of them by actual historians like Elaine Howard and Barnabas Calder and some of them by people that are just like Tumblr people. And it's really funny for me that this happens at the point in which A, the stuff is ripe for privatisation mm. and B, at a point in which it's been specifically attacked by the Prime Minister, which was just a bizarre world. So the... Oh God, where to, where to start with this? This is such a huge topic. The thing with brutalism is that because it's quite a sort of gestural, you know, quite kind of individualistic form of design in lots of ways, it tends to be quite special, so it stands out. Whereas the more sort of standard modernism of the era does not. So there's a strange thing where I think the the stuff that's obviously like bespoke and one-off, so Trellick Tower, Park Hill, Balfron Tower, in a particularly dubious way, um, the Brunswick Centre, Keeling House you know, to name the obvious ones. Mm-hmm. These are either they're serious victims of right to buy. So you have the situation at the Brunswick Centre or at Trellick Tower where actually most people are council tenants, but anyone that sells up has this huge incentive that they'll be able to make an absolute killing if they do so. Um, they'll be able to, you know, sell it for probably ten times what they'll buy it for. It's amazing why people don't do it, mm-hmm. um, probably because a lot of people there can't afford to and a lot of people like that like living there because why wouldn't you? So on the one hand, there's that. So when a flat goes in one of those, it goes for like, you know, £900,000, as it recently did in the Brunswick Centre, £700,000 in Trellick for a one-bedroom flat, living next door to people that are, that are council tenants. So on the one hand, there's, there's this happening. And that will only be increased by the current housing bill, which seems to be designed to 
And I don't think this is remotely alarmist. It seems to be designed to destroy the very concept and institution of social housing. Not even just council housing. Like, like even the housing associations now are a target. They've been the Trojan horse for, for gentrification and privatisation for a long time. But even they are kind of like, the, <laughs> the middleman is getting shot now as well. And they don't seem very interested in fighting about it. So, you know, you now have the thing of like, if a council flat becomes vacated in a high value area, the council now has to legally flog it. Within... If the tenant dies, for instance, that they, that, you know that, that children no longer get first dibs. That will basically mean that in if it's not repealed, in twenty years, all of the you know well-designed brutalist estates will be gone. The ones that are iconic, the ones that are on the plates and on the t-shirts, they'll be gone. Whereas you also have this parallel thing happening in places like Park Hill and Keeling House and in Bowfront Tower, where it's much more dirigiste, where it's just literally like they're just being sold off. Just being openly just sold off. There's no like incremental process. It's just like like just selling it off. Councils just keeping themselves afloat by just selling them to developers. And the case of Park Hill not even selling them to developers, but giving them to developers. I think that sums up the difference in London and the North quite well, actually. That in Balfour Tower and Keeling House, there was a the, you know they, they actually knew that it sat on quite valuable land that they could sell it. Um, Urban Splash paid a quid for Park Hill, as I recall, and then got loads of funding from English Heritage to do it up as luxury flats. It's a great example of sort of state-sponsored gentrification. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, there's this stuff, and David Cameron is someone that you know lives in North Kensington. I don't imagine he's unaware of this. Someone lived in North Kensington. Right? Um, he can't have been unaware of how much a flat in Charlotte Tower costs. But he chose to use this sort of 80s rhetoric via pseudoscientific charlatans like Alice Coleman to talk about, you know, these alleyways and dark spaces and ugly concrete and so on as a way of getting rid of the other stuff that no one's going to want to buy. You know, the Aylesbury Estate or the Alston or Broadwater Farm, these are not on plates they are, you know, going to, not going to remain not on plates because they're not architecturally particularly interesting. Um, that doesn't mean I think any of them should be demolished. I think the Aylesbury, on the one hand, is, you know, an example of seriously kind of cookie-cutter 60s design. It's not great as architecture, but it's sound housing that seems to me patently is that the residents would rather it was upgraded and renovated and the public spaces were sorted out rather than they got decanted to God knows where and then got an option for an affordable home they can't afford. Mm-hmm. You know, they'd rather not be cleansed from their homes, unsurprisingly. Well, I mean, you, um, you talk but, but, about also mm. the, the E15 focus months mm. in this book. Again, you know, we, we're spending time talking about, you know, the architectural value yeah. of a lot of these estates. Yep. They don't give a damn about that. They want somewhere no, to absolutely live. not. Although one of the things that, I mean, although it's so it's so strange some of this how kind of sometimes architecture doesn't you can't you can't do a direct one to one relation with these things like sometimes you know Southwark Council could quite easily look, point to Haygate and Aylesbury and say to people that don't live on Haygate and Aylesbury aren't these places horrible aren't we great for getting rid of them mm. I imagine the people that were most upset about Haygate and Aylesbury oh Aylesbury is still happening are people that actually live there yeah. people that don't live there don't give a toss. The interesting thing that's happening also, though, with Lambeth Council, for instance, is that they're picking on places like Central Hill and Cressingham Gardens that are low-rise, pretty, green, desirable. If you took most people, I think, round Central Hill or Cressingham Gardens, that'd be very uncontroversial. Mm-hmm. You know, she's, my mum is, my, my is always my kind of like, if I took my mum round so a place X, what would she think? Mm-hmm. And I think round Haygate should be like... Mum's mum has lived on several council estates, so she's perhaps not the typical person. But I think she would she would find it hard to see why the Aylesbury mm-hmm. is good. 
If I took her around Cressingham Gardens or Central Hill, she'd immediately be like, oh, this is lovely, mm-hmm. because it is. And they've had to, you know, underfund them for a long time in order to make them dilapidated. Whereas the Carpenters, which is what E15 was focused on, is a little bit in between. You know, it's it's not monolithic mm-hmm. and it's not, but it's also quite standardised. It's not as clever and interesting as Central Hill or Cressingham. So for them, it's just it just cuts wonderfully through this debate and goes, well, you know, they're sound homes. We need them. You've got them. You know, we vote for you. We own you. We pay our taxes to you, Newham Council. Why can't you? Why can't you let us live there? And that's just so beautifully simple. And it almost like you know, almost the whole debate becomes a little bit superfluous at that point. It's just like that kind of makes the point. <laughs> These things exist. They're useful. They work. Do them up and let us live in them. What more do you need? This is Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny, and I'm talking to Owen Hatherley. I had other things I wanted to talk about about this book, but I think that that's a really good point for us to finish mm. talking about the Ministry of Nostalgia and move on, because I do want to spend a few minutes at the end of the show talking about landscapes of communism mm. as well. What's the idea behind this book? This is one which I think got a little bit misunderstood. It took me years to write. <laughs> a lot of sweat went into this book. A lot of thought, which is not always the case. And... Um, I think people kind of got mentioned mostly as defence of communist architecture, Mm -hmm. sometimes as an attack on, critique of, and it's not either of those things. It was an attempt to work out if it ever existed. Was there, in real socialism or communism or state capitalism, whatever you want to call it, uh, something that was different or better or worse um, between 1917 and 1991? Did they do anything that we can learn from, that we can't learn from? You know, what what was it? It's an attempt, and that is very open-ended. It was, And probably that's why it's a bit more difficult to sell, because it's not a polemic. It's an attempt at sort of trying to discover what something was via exploring it, via kind of testing it. So it sort of does that via particular types that I think they did differently or not differently, which are streets, housing estates, public buildings high-rises, metro systems, historical reconstructions, and memorials. And also kind of self-built stuff, of which there's quite a lot. Well, again, the, the very idea of a sort of monolithic communist architecture, even though when I say that, people will think of rows and rows and rows of grey mm, blocks. Mm, mm. You obviously look at a number of countries in this book. There's many countries. But also that communist architecture changes depending on whoever is in charge. I mean, and what they communist architecture is. is wildly different yeah. to what came after. Absolutely. There's a, the, the right-wing architecture historian and, and fan of General Franco, David Watkin, described the work of Leslie Martin, who was one of the designers of the Royal Festival Hall, the Crystal Palace Sports Centre, um, lots of buildings in Oxford and Cambridge, and the Woodbury Down Estate in Bethnal Green, described him his work as the architecture of Stalinism, mm-hmm. which is hilarious if you actually know what the architecture of Stalinism is. The architecture of Stalinism is neo-Baroque and neoclassicism. It's stuff that David Watkin would have really liked, mm-hmm. and stuff that Prince Charles would have really liked. And those of the more the more honest of architectural traditionalists, like Simon Jenkins, really like this stuff. So that to me is quite intriguing. That actually they were sort of architectural populists. And one of the things that connects these, I guess, is the, the different ways that post-war reconstruction happened. 1945 in Coventry or Rotterdam or Cologne was pretty year zero. Mm-hmm. 
you know, occasionally they would restore like the major buildings. So in Cologne, they basically like restored the Romanesque churches, and everything else started afresh. You know, in Coventry, started basically afresh, and then kind of you know restored a couple of churches, and then built a new cathedral. You know, Rotterdam similarly, and then you have this complete new landscape of like sweep away all this crap and start again. That's what's happening in social democratic, you know, liberal democratic Western Europe. What's happening in Eastern Europe is historical reconstruction. What happens in Gdansk, in Dresden, in Warsaw famously, in St. Petersburg, in bits of East Berlin, is historical reconstruction combined with neo-historicist new stuff. So basically the kind of narrative that we've had since the 70s, that this is what everybody really wanted, mm-hmm. well, what everybody really wanted was being provided by, you know, Stalinism which I think puts an interesting spin on this idea of like people's democratic choice in architecture and so forth, of, like, that this flagrantly undemocratic system was busy providing it. What was, I mean, what was the purpose of that, like completely rebuilding you know, the historical centre of Warsaw as it was? Mm. I mean, is there sort of propaganda value in that as well? Yeah, absolutely. And, and the, the, the Warsaw case is a little bit exceptional. <laughs> and I think lots of it is connected with how different World War II was in the Western and Eastern Front. Yeah. The Western Front, although this is not to understand state what happened was the Nazis were fighting people they regarded as human. They did not regard who they were fighting on the Eastern Front as human. They did not regard Poles, Russians, Ukrainians, Belarusians, Jews most most obviously as human beings. (laughs) And they were not treated as human beings. The amount of you know, the, the barbarity of the German war in the East is not fully comprehended in Western Europe. Um, so the destruction of Warsaw in 1944, after the suppression of the Warsaw Rising, was designed at erasing the idea that Warsaw had ever existed. You know, they did stuff that they never did um, when, when, when bombing Britain or France, of, you know, burning the libraries, you know, destroying the galleries, you know, destroying any record that this culture had existed. And so in that sense... I think even a democratic Polish government might have done a bit of reconstruction as a way of maintaining, well, you tried to, you know, you've tried to exterminate us while we're here. However, there was a lot of opposition to it at the mm-hmm. time. Like Polish modernist architects, who incidentally were gathered around the Liverpool School of Architecture at that point, um, which is where basically the Polish architecture schools in exile were all based in Liverpool, um, were modernists. What they, what they wanted was much closer to what was happening in Rotterdam or <laughs> Southampton than it was what was happening in Warsaw. They didn't want the city centre to be reconstructed, and they certainly didn't want the the kind of uh, neoclassicist, you know, new housing that was being built. They didn't want that even less. And in many cases, you know, those those are the people that, that then left Poland. There's a lot of architects in Chicago, you know, that, that left Poland in the, in, the, in the late 1940s because they they hated historical reconstruction and neoclassicism. And that I think is partly a there's an element of it that's, that's about populism. There's an element of it which is about you know, in a, in an undemocratic system, giving people something that they want as a way of buying off popular resistance but also it's about authenticity and the modern movement in architecture shares with Ruskin and Morris in the 19th century the idea of authenticity in architecture the Society for the Protection of Ancient Buildings set up by Morris basically is against Victorian church restorers mm-hmm. um, the idea that like you know George Gilbert Scott or Street or Butterfield the idea that they could like so add to old churches and add their own design to old churches was seen by Morris and Ruskin as completely barbarous you know it's like finishing an unfinished painting for them you just did not do this you left it as a ruin and you secured it and that's what you did you did not finish it that was just like, you know, the worst thing you could possibly do. And modernism comes out of that to a very large degree. You know, most modernists could trace their lineage, most modernists in the middle, middle of the century, could trace their lineage to the arts and crafts in one way or the other, much more than they could to neoclassicism. 
the Stalinist architecture that emerges in the 30s, which is all about sort of scenery, which is all about, you know, urban set pieces and, and, and Baroque and splendour. And that authenticity is totally, totally irrelevant. It's all about the facade. And so that objection, like you can't reconstruct because it's not real, for them just wouldn't make sense. Reality is whatever you want to make it. I'm Hannah Fry. You're listening to Resonance FM. And this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. A sort of parallel narrative of this book, as well as being a survey of the actual architecture, is you, you know, you're looking to see if you can if you can rediscover what socialism is. Mm. So how did that go? Not very well, because the, the people I, I get annoyed when historians do this sort of don't question the terms. Like there's a great book by Stephen Kotkin on the new tale of Magnetogorsk called Magnetic Mountain. Masterpiece of a book. Like really, I, I wouldn't have any any criticism of it other than the fact that he just from the start goes socialism is the state ownership of the economy. Therefore, it was socialist. Right, we're done with that. Now we're going to continue. And, and it's like most socialists at the time would not have agreed with this. And that matters. I think to a lot of historians, it doesn't really matter. And to me, it kind of does. And that, that is a lot of the interest is like, obviously, that society does not exist. But whether or not what they built, which in many cases they did believe or did claim to believe, inculcated some kind of socialist values, whether or not you can tell. And mostly the answer is no. Now, actually, the real drivers between what's, what's happening in most of those countries is something that's totally, totally unromantic, which is that for most of Eastern Europe, the 1950s and 60s is when the Industrial Revolution happens. And in the Soviet Union, 1930s is when the Industrial Revolution happens. And so, you know, cities grow like Topsy at this point, and they have to deal with it. And they their, their means to industrialization, their means to raising the general standard, is a form of planning because they say fair capitalism has never actually made anywhere rich, really, apart from Britain, which which managed to get rich out of laissez-faire because it was pulling all the strings. That actually it's an analogue of what happened around the same time in somewhere like Singapore or South Korea or Japan, of like, you know, a sort of very, very controlled, planned industrialization, And it's interesting that the 1980s debt crisis is actually more than anything else, it's that which kills it. Because like any peripheral country, you, you know, the way that you do this is, you know, you plan and you borrow, and they borrowed a lot. Then in the 80s they had to pay it all back, and it destroyed them. That's really the story. And socialism is in many ways a, a justification for it and a mobilising slogan for it, and one which I think was more popular than most than most seem to think. I think a lot of opposition movements during communism um, subscribed to socialist values, particularly solidarity. And it's interesting for me and rather sad that when it collapses in the 1990s, they abandon that. They immediately have this kind of like, OK, well, now we've got to build capitalism. So the places where I come close to saying something was different was done here that was better are probably mainly public buildings of the period which i think had a sort of abundance of public space that was quite that was quite rare and had a kind of an expanded version of culture that was quite interesting like you know that the, the average kind of model worker settlement would, would have its its amateur theater its cinema you know the idea that kind of culture was produced not necessarily just by by an elite but was something that was accessible i think probably went further in the eastern bloc than it did in the west i think that high culture in general was something that they took much more seriously um, and they were terrified that it would oppose them as it frequently did mm-hmm. and the other thing is the metros and which again kind of come out a little bit out of frank pick and there's a kind of um the idea that the, the, the public transport system is what you start planning with 
rather than, you know, kind of Houseman and his boulevards, or I guess Robert Moses is a little bit similar with his bridges, but, you know, that this is and the highways, but for them it's like for London in the 30s, public transport is, is the means by which the city is planned. And they were advised by the London Underground. They had Frank Pick over to, to advise, and they gave him the Order of Lenin. And, you know, Gantz Hill Station was later designed by Holden as a little tribute to Moscow. So the metro there, both in terms of its kind of its, its sort of beauty and the kind of the opulence of its materials and the kind of atmospheric lighting that it has and so forth, and also the kind of the stories that it tells. They, they work as kind of open-air galleries, you know, particularly the, the circle line that's built in the late 40s is a sort of series of, of stories in many ways. It's a, a sort of narrative. Those are kind of versions of public space that I think have nothing to do with anything that's ever happened in a capitalist mm-hmm. state. They take a certain idea from London of, like, wouldn't it be nice if the public transport system was the city? They take that and then they just take it to completely fascinating extremes and I think you know the probably I, I think they built in terms of quality if not always of extent the best public transport systems in the world and I think that if you compare like the way that Moscow or St Petersburg was planned in the 60s let's say all about this network and not just that not just the kind of sexy stuff for the metro that's really really obvious and that everyone who goes to those two cities goes and takes pictures of but also tram networks trolley buses um, you know, that these were expanded right out and private transport was secondary. And there's some dispute about whether or not this is this is ideologically driven or whether it's driven by industry. But anyway, that's by the by. This is what they do. And this is what European cities and Chinese cities as well and, and Japanese ones have spent the last 15 years trying to do. is trying to remove the car-centred redesigns that they did in the 1960s and build this back in build those networks that they that they actually were tearing up in the 60s. You know, in the 60s, the big idea of London is not to expand the tube out to the new housing estates. The idea is to build the ringways, mm-hmm. you know, is to build, is to plough motorways through huge chunks of London, which will then make thousands of people homeless. And it's just ludicrous. It makes so much more sense to have just built more tubes. And for the last 15 years, that's been what London, in its rather inept way, has been has been trying to do. And what other cities like like Nottingham and Sheffield have been trying to do this with their trams, of trying trying to you know right okay public transport is the is now the sensible thing to do. If I were there's, there's various kind of like pet places I'd like to take councillors and planners because I think they they all went to Barcelona in the 90s and got some strange ideas out of that. And for housing, I think they should all be taken to Vienna, and for transport, they should all be taken to Moscow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you know, look how this works. That is the nearest to the socialist space that the book comes across and you but mentioned then, Vienna there mm, and the other mm. th- point I was going to raise was I mean again you know this idea of, of communist architecture mm. well communist architecture can be found in Vienna or in Stockholm or mm, places mm, that mm, like, well, never socialist architecture yeah. yeah and I think one of the real, real tragedies of of Eastern Europe in the 90s because the idea had been so discredited particularly by the, the chaos of the 80s in those countries that they couldn't kind of pick up those ideas and use them in a different way and I think it's interesting that, that probably the country which seems to have like preserved as much of its kind of Soviet legacy more than anywhere else is East Germany and I think one reason for that is because it joined a country was annexed basically by a country which had really strong trade unions and a social democratic party that was founded by Marx and Engels it's quite hard to, to kind of you know if like one of your main governing parties was founded by Marx and Engels, it's quite hard to say that you need to demolish all the Marx monuments. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it joined a country that had a left, and I think that's why they still do now, and why a lot of Eastern Europe really does not. So I think that social democracy and, and, and the sort of Soviet system had a much closer interlinking than people like to think. 
So in the 30s, and this is totally disavowed, you can't find any proof for this, but in the 30s, I think, one of their main models was the very kind of heroic housing estates of Vienna in the 20s, which are very declarative, they're full of public sculpture, they're very monumental, they have a sense of splendour and grandeur, which constructivism didn't have. And I think that they're about that. Um, similarly, in the, in the post-war stuff, it's, the big inspiration is, is Sweden and Finland. That's where architects are going to Sweden and Finland and going, right, how are they doing housing estates? Which geographically and historically makes a lot of sense is to, is to start there. In fact, I think things could have been very, very different if they'd started there from the start. So I've been talking to Owen Hathelain. We've been talking about both the Ministry of Nostalgia and Landscapes of Communism. So, Owen, thank you so much for coming in and telling me about both of them. Thanks. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.